He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Kia ora and welcome to the Kim Hill Collection. The American TV writer and showrunner David Simon is the creator of The Wire, universally considered one of the great TV shows of all time. But he's chatting to Kim here about his 2020 miniseries, The Plot Against America. This is an adaptation of Philip Roth's novel from 2004, which imagines an alternative history in which the populist aviator Charles Lindbergh wins the US presidency in 1940. The parallels between the source material and the presidency of Donald Trump are unavoidable, especially as this interview took place in May 2020 with the world at a standstill due to COVID-19. It's a deep listen. It's a pretty chastening listen. Uh, Enjoy it, if enjoy is the right word. The Wire could be the best television series of all time, and its creator David Simons is considered one of the founders of top-class television. He um, also made Treme about post-Katrina New Orleans and The Deuce about the porn industry in New York from the 1970s. He has adapted works of non-fiction for television and now, in his first adaptation of a work of fiction, Simon and his frequent collaborator Ed Burns have created a six-part series of Philip Roth's novel The Plot Against America, a counterfactual history in which aviation hero Charles Lindbergh uh, defeats Franklin D. Roosevelt for the 1940 presidential election and embarks on a programme of anti-Semitism. I asked David Simon if Roth would have liked his adaptation. I have no idea. Um... I think he probably would have liked some things and maybe not others, but I never got the chance to uh, run scripts by him. By the time we had uh, even first drafts of scripts, he had passed away. So I, I had one meeting with him. It was for about an hour and a half. We went over some things that uh, he had some concerns and some some hopes that I tried to honor, and I think we did. Um, I had a few things that I queried him about, and I felt like he gave me at least enough latitude to try something different. Whether he would have liked it or not, I have no way of knowing. The main difference, I, I, I mean, apart from the, you know, the multiple point of views, the main difference is the ending, I think, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, I think that and certainly what we did with Alvin in terms of trying to get some kind of point of view uh, structurally within the novel on what happens to Lindbergh, because I felt in the novel, I think he made it work about as well as you can in, in the novel, this uh, this duem machina where um, Lindbergh just takes off one day, disappears, plane disappears, and, and, and history reverts to form. History reverts to, to our known reality. Um, he set it up kind of nicely. He had, uh, he mentioned the earlier crashes that Lindbergh had as an airmail pilot. He talked about him having to put down and be out of out of you know missing for about a day during the campaign. He set it up about as well as you could for prose, but I just felt like at, at six hours, um, with people wanted something more. I think we needed to address uh, something more than random chance, uh, and so it gave us an opportunity to graft in a, a sort of a, a, 
another text, if you will, um, that of Julius Caesar, you know, the, uh, the idea of what do you do when your republic is no longer a republic? What is permissible? What, you know, is violence uh, a, a, a reasonable response to an unreasonable political situation? Or is it, you know, is it always fraught? Does it always lead to, to worse? Um, and the idea to play that out so that even Alvin had even the slightest glimpse of those kind of machinations, uh, it, it was interesting to us. You know, it, it certainly touched on something. Yeah, well, I mean, I have to ask you because of the resonances that it has for today in your country. I mean, we were talking about the Weather Underground in an indirect fashion the other week. Was mm-hmm. there a case? Is there a case for killing or John, or John Brown? You know, if you know American history, the idea sure. of you know was he was he a terrorist or is he, was he an abolitionist? Uh, and if he's an abolitionist, he was on the right side of history and. You could argue that if you're if you're resorting to terror against civilian targets, uh, you're never on the right side of history. And people have argued both. Um, he was probably both. Uh, you know, Brutus and Cassius, to go back to the original source material, uh, or you know, obviously you can believe that you're on the side of right, and you can end up as John Wilkes Booth or Lee Harvey Oswald. So I, I'm not sure we were advocating. In, in fact, I know we weren't advocating for anything, okay. but it seemed to me that in all of this, in, in, in our time where the idea of what, what constitutes dissent and resistance and what is permissible and what is not, that, that, that bore some examination, I thought. And it's highlighted by characters like Evelyn, who says, I didn't do anything wrong, when we know she did, she just didn't comprehend how wrong it was. Right. It seemed plausible to her. Uh, and it, of course, was graced by all of the good things that were happening to her personally. Um, you know, e- Evelyn is the uh, Evelyn Finkel, the sister in this piece, is the is the voice of acquiescence, of, of appeasement, of, of complicity uh, with something that has clearly gone off you know, off track in terms of, uh, a, a, you know, a moral political uh, paradigm. And Alvin is the voice of resistance and rebellion. And in between stands the Levin family, um, a very ordinary quotidian family in Newark, New Jersey. And and that structure, uh, I thought when we teased that out, Roth gave us that. I mean, he really gave us that powerful nuclear family. You know, it's a parlor drama, effectively, with politics swirling around it. And then we just, uh, you know, we just teased out uh, Evelyn and Alvin as sort of the wings to that you know, as the, as the people who have committed one way or the other. About Lindbergh, somebody says, I can't remember who it was. Everyone sees the schmuck for what he is, but they didn't. And it seemed inconceivable no. that they didn't, but, you know, here we are. Here you are. Here we are. Well, there's a lot of countries that are going through this now. Um, not you, uh, thank thank goodness. Um, uh, yeah, I've... I've at a distance, I found your uh, your leadership to be admirable in a time where there's very little of that. Um, but yes, America finds itself in a very ugly place. You know, Roth, one of the things he said to me, he said, don't confuse Trump with Lindbergh in one sense. In his imagination, in Roth's imagination, you needed somebody who was a extraordinary hero to sell Americans on the kind of demagoguery uh, that could undo their own republic and undo their own uh, governing norms and their, and their civil liberties. 
he would have to be somebody who had done some extraordinarily heroic things and had personal magnetism and charm, as Lindbergh did. He was probably the greatest hero of that American generation before the war. Um, and he looked at Trump, you know, and he famously said, this is a man with a 270-word vocabulary who's never had a, pers- a moment of personal dignity in his life. We didn't, you know, the terrifying thing for Roth, and, and I think he was correct, is when, when, when push came to shove, Americans really didn't even need a hero. We just needed somebody to excite and metastasize our worst fears and our worst impulses and our, our xenophobia and our racism and our misogyny. We just needed somebody to tap into that. Didn't matter who he was. Maybe that's what constitutes a hero these days. <laughs> that's quite sad to think. Um, but I think. It's well, I don't know. I mean, how how did that happen? Uh, it happened because, you know, I think we've embraced an economic model that has, in some basic ways, disenfranchised much of the country uh, to the benefit of, of a, of a, uh, a plurality that has, uh, reaped the benefits of that economic model. We, we've not, we've embraced an unrestrained capitalism that isn't tethered to any social framework anymore. Um, profit is the metric by which we measure everything in our society. So we did a pretty good job of alienating a lot of people who used to feel as if they could buy in to the American um, standard and the American norm of of, of self governance, um, and over time, I think they felt left behind. And so all we needed was one son of a bitch um, to start saying the ugliest possible things about their neighbors and the people who are a little different from them or the newcomers in terms of immigration. We just needed somebody to excite uh, their worst impulses, and he did. Uh, and he did it with a vengeance. And that's not the majority of my country. And, you know, the truth is, if you live in you know, on the East Coast, and you know, if you live in Baltimore, or New York, or you know, the city of New Orleans, or, or Los Angeles, or Chicago, nobody's fooled by Trump. You, you don't meet a lot of people off, you know, I mean, maybe quietly there's some voters there, but by and large, that's, that's the places that would have nothing to do with him. In New York that knew Trump for 30, 40 years of his, of his professional career, such as it was, uh, he, you know, he couldn't carry one out of 10 votes in New York City. Everyone knew him. Everyone knew what he was about. But at a distance, if you were angry and if you just wanted to send a message that, that you were tired of the country leaving you behind and you were willing to vote for anybody um, who said they would blow things up, he presented a marvelous opportunity. The plot against America is an examination of what it means to be American both in the book and in your production. And at one point, uh, someone says they think we're just pretending to be Americans. This is the Jews. They think we're just pretending to be Americans. And that's the guts of it, isn't it? Somebody has an idea of what it is to be a real American and a number of people don't fit. And an increasing number of people don't fit. Right, it's always a lie. It's always a lie. It goes back in my country. The history goes back to the, the really to the beginning of the republic, but uh, it manifested itself in, in overt political movements as early as the 1840s, and the targets then were um, were the Irish, 
especially, and the Germans. Um, and then later it was the waves of immigration from the Italians, the Sicilians, and then it was the Eastern Europeans and the Jews. And at each point, um, the new immigrant wave was regarded as being less American in its potential. Uh, they would not be able to assimilate. They didn't believe the same things. They worshipped different gods. Their politics were different. They were suspect. Um, this was said as a matter of routine by each, you know, by each established order against each immigrant class. And it was always proven to be a lie. And it's one of the reasons that Roth uh, was very clear with me uh, that in the book, the family needed to be assimilating so fast it made your head spin. These should not be Jewish Americans who were coming to this country and, you know, they were wearing payas and frocks and uh, orthodox and davening three times a day. And, and uh, you know, they weren't they weren't trying to reestablish Europe here. They were trying to become Americans so fast that, you know, there was scarcely a pause before they assimilated, which is really the truth of most immigrant groups. And it's going to happen today with the black and brown people and the Muslims and the people that. Trump has invade against and has uh, excited his base against, they're going to be Americans the same way you know, everybody assimilates. Um, this country was built for that, and, and we do it better than anybody in the world. Um, but at each given moment, um, the newcomer's the enemy. And that's a great political tool, and it's always used. They always reach for it, and Trump did. I'm talking to David Simon about his uh, his latest production, The Plot Against American, adaptation of the Philip Roth novel. You've said that this is a story about your father and his generation to some extent. Your father would have grown up with Lindbergh as a hero and then not. Exactly. My dad told me the story of being seven years old and having his father, my grandfather, my grandpa Max, taking him from Jersey City across the river on the, in the tube train to New York, to lower Manhattan, to sit on his father's shoulders and watch uh, Charles Lindbergh come down Broadway in the ticker tape parade after his flight to Paris. Um, that was one of my father's earliest memories, and it was a vivid one. And Lindbergh stayed a hero with him until the late 1930s. Um, and, and indeed, probably until 3940, uh, when Lindbergh's, uh, his anti-Semitism, his affection for fascism, his uh, level of comfort with the, with the likes of Goring and Goebbels and Hitler um, and his isolationism in the, in the, in the wake of, uh, of Nazism and fascism became known. So for, in my father's adolescence, I mean, you know, by the time he was a sophomore at the, at the at NYU as a journalism major, Charles Lindbergh was, uh, went, had gone from being the greatest hero in his lifetime to being one of the worst Americans he could conjure. Um, that was, that was what it was. If you were a Jewish American, uh, you know, that was who Lindbergh was. And, um, it's fair to say Roosevelt was afraid of him running. He was recruited by the, the Republicans to run in 1940 and he refused for personal reasons, declined, but he was the candidate that Roosevelt genuinely feared as he tried for his third term. Walter Winchell's an interesting character. Um, he's, you know, described as a mensch. And he attacked the appeasers of Hitler, such as Lindbergh. But then, of course, as we know later on, he fell 
um, from the moral high ground, if you like, as well. Absolutely. And aligned with McCarthy. So, you know, (laughs) nobody's entirely good. It just takes good timing sometimes, doesn't it? and, and And nobody is entirely good. You're absolutely right. I mean, first of all, Lindbergh was a great hero. Um, he was a, 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 an incredibly brave man, um, uh, a pioneer in aviation. Uh, he was brave beyond uh, beyond all reckoning. Uh, after Pearl Harbor, uh, he volunteered, tried to get back into the war effort. Uh, Roosevelt very carefully sent him to the Pacific. Um, and he, he actually got into combat against uh, Roosevelt's wishes and shot down a couple of Japanese planes. Um, you know, there's a lot to commend Charlie Lindbergh. Uh, same thing with, you know, Winchell had his moments, uh, and then, you know, and then fell into a love of authority that was, you know, unbecoming of any journalist. Uh, so yeah, that's known Roosevelt. Um, you know, at the same time that he was a hero to the new deal coalition, to Jews and to, and to blacks and Italians and Irish, um, he was, you know, he was very quietly, uh, or very not quietly, uh, after after Pearl Harbor, allowing uh, this incredible overreaction where we, we arrested all of our J- Japanese American citizens and, and and put them in into into detention camps throughout the West. Um, nobody is no nobody gets out clean if you live a human life. You know, we all we all stumble somewhere, but you know. Roth had to basically take a novel and say, let me try to imagine where people slip and fall. And he did. So History is able to show the nuances of human character, you know, on the one hand, on the other hand. Um, I, how do you think history is going to shade in the nuances with your current president? Will there be any on the pro side of what he's done for America? You're asking the wrong person. I think we genuinely have elected not only one of the stupidest men um, to ever hold high office in my country, but also one of the most venal and vindictive. Um, you know, you can meet a lot of fools. You don't meet a lot of fools who are this malevolent um, in terms of their willingness to hurt other people or to demand loyalty at great cost um, to those who uh, merely want to dissent politically. Uh, I've I've, I'm astounded um, by at what we've done. I can't really imagine a clear-eyed historian writing this up as anything other than um, my country p- impaling itself uh, on 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 a failed experiment in self-governance. But, I mean, obviously, t- but, Trump was in your mind, not as you said so much in Philip Roth's mind. He said it wasn't an allegory. Um, of of Donald Trump, and he wrote it in the wake of nine eleven. But there are oh, some lines, and I can't remember whether these lines are in the book. Um, but it's certainly somebody says in your adaptation of Lindbergh, if he says it, every other American gets the right to say it. And obviously, that's what people reckon about Trump. That's exactly what purpose he serves. Is it not? That, that, yeah, that, there was some of that in the book. I can't, I don't know that line specifically, but there was some of the fact that he has allowed raw racism and anti-Semitism and xenophobia to crawl out of the woodwork. If the president says it, then it can't be bad. And and there will there are some people who will abide by that dynamic. Um, 
that at the same time, you know, I, I would say Roth recognized that he had written a novel and without intent, it had become an allegory for Trump at the, to at the point that I talked to him after, after 2016, um, he was very much aware that even if by accident he had written something about a demagogue that very much approximated the process by which Trump had seized the plurality of American voters and had managed to uh, get himself elected president. Um, you know, the one, the one that he thought he had not written an allegory for was George W. Bush. He wrote it after uh, 9-11 and after the, the first misadventure in Iraq. I'm sorry, the second, the second misadventure in Iraq. <laughs> and uh, and um, he, uh, he, he very much insisted he was not thinking of George W. Bush in particular when he wrote that piece on Lindbergh. He was thinking of Lindbergh. Um, but Roth, Roth knew why I'd come to his door and why HBO had optioned the book. He very much was aware that somehow uh, the manner in which he had imagined Lindbergh very much it was very allegorical um, to the moment with Donald Trump. I'm talking to David Simon, famously of The Wire, and his latest work is P The Plot Against America. Did Philip Roth mind you changing the name because he wrote it? It was the Roth family. Right. Yes. He, he felt that when he, you know, to paraphrase him, when he had control of the book, when he was just writing the book, he knew exactly what he was going to put in or leave out. But he understood that once we, you know, uh, some screenwriters came behind him and started uh, penning scripts, and then behind them, some actors started coming through and portraying these people in their own light. Uh, it, would, it would be further attenuated from the, the Roth family that he knew. So he asked us to keep the surnames. That, uh, that was fine. Uh, I'm sorry, to keep the given names, but to change the surname. If he thought it would give his family a little distance, and I think that was fair. I have to say it's the most gorgeous production I've seen you make. It's so beautiful. Edward Hopper keeps on recurring, does he not? Uh, you know, I thought of Hopper a lot when I watched some of the shot composition. We have to credit the directors here, uh, Minky Spiro and uh, and uh, Tommy Schlamy. Um, the, the two of them together uh, in concert uh, deftly and I'm not the biggest budget in the world because, you know, it's not like HBO gives me the uh, the David Chase or the Steven Spielberg money. Um, I'm not the, you know, not having every last dollar. I think they did beautifully in terms of rendering this world. It's both nostalgic, but at the same time, ordinary. You know, there's never a moment where you think the camera's doing more than it should um, or it's capturing these sets and these streets and, and it's, it's somehow better than it should be. I'm really, you know, I'm really very charmed by what they did with the piece. So I'm glad you noticed. I think your own family gets a number of cameos in the photographs in the house of the they livings. Do. They do. Uh, yeah, the, the photographs of at the, at the Levin house and also at the, at the mother's house, at the Finkel mother's house. Uh, many of the pho photographs on the wall are my family, uh, the generations from say 1880 to 1940, you know, there's a, there's a couple of, there's a shot of my father, uh, when he was a college student in 1939 with his, or 1940 with his, uh, his, uh, 10 year old sister, Betty, that has been, is in background two or three times. And it just, my heart leaps into my throat when I see it. Also Winona Ryder's family, uh, her father's bar mitzvah 
portrait is is up on the wall there. Were you brought up to be an observant Jew? I was not. Uh, I was brought up to be to know how to be an observant Jew. <laughs> um, I, I guess the, the joke in my family is um, you learn the liturgy, uh, you know what you're doing, you learn why everything is the way it is, and then you find your own way in the world. And if you want to be observant, you can, but we're probably not going to get up on Saturday morning and go to synagogue. Um, the joke in my family has always been that we couldn't possibly be reform or reconstructionist Jews. We'd have to be at least conservative. And the shul that we fail to attend regularly will have to be conservative. And to this day, that's kind of where I'm at. You know, my son was bar mitzvahed. Um, my daughter will be bar mitzvahed, bat mitzvahed rather. Um, you know, uh, it, it, for me, it's mostly ancestor worship and it's culture, cultural. I, I don't believe in, in God. I certainly don't believe in chosenness. You know, I'm, I'm with Spinoza on that. So this project was a chance to visit a few things that were cultural to me and familial, uh, but there's no theology behind it, I have to admit. One of the saddest characters is um, is the rabbi, Bengelsdorf, played by John Tuturo, who is an apologist for Lindbergh and thinks that he's finally getting the Jews into a position of power and dignity, and then he turns out to be despised, openly despised, by Lindbergh's hacks, and you see it dawning on his face that he's sold everything for nothing. Yeah, it's the uh, the paradox of the court Jew. Uh, if you stand near the throne uh, and you gain some influence, um, uh, at what cost and to what extent? Um, it's hard to say. You know, there's a, there's a Jewish holiday called Purim that is all predicated on the idea of a court Jew saving, saving the uh, Jewish population of, of ancient Persia. Uh, the entire narrative of the Megillah is about um, a favored wife of the Persian king speaking well on behalf of her people from inside the castle. So we have an entire um, religious construct embedded in our in our uh, in our in the Hebrew calendar around that very idea of um, always being the outsider of always trying to um, affect change in the most subtle possible way because it's always it, it, it's it's the narrative of a powerless people that has has you know lived in diaspora for centuries and at the same time uh, there are moments where uh, the narrative in Judaism is about resistance and rebellion um and you know the hanukkah the hanukkah ritual or uh, or passover um and so both things are the both things really apply but for bengelsdorf he he put his money on one and it turned out to be the other i was surprised to hear you say that hbo wasn't throwing money at you <laughs> listen they make they let me make television and nobody watches it when it's on they all find it months and years later. People are finding. Is that right? Oh yeah, I've never had a show watched in real time. Not even The Wire. Um, people are finding De uh, Deuce now. They're finding Treme now. Um, Good lord! You know, nothing gets been? watched. Nothing gets watched. And you know, I'm, I've always been quiet when I'm on the air. So, as far as I'm concerned, 
HBO, these people are like the Medici's because they let me make the television I want to make and they give it a home and they give me enough money so that if I'm, you know, if I'm a little bit frugal and, and I work with, you know, my co-producer on all, you know, on all of this television, Nina Noble is, you know, she'll stretch a dollar as far as it goes. We can get it. We can get the work done. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not saying it with any degree of resentment, but um, I'm always impressed when a director comes in and on, on the limited budgets that we have, they make it work. The first thing you did for HBO was The Wire, was it? No, it was The Corner. Oh, uh, The Corner, you did that for HBO? Yes, that was oh. the first thing. And it was after The Corner did well that they, uh, they asked me if I had anything else, and that became The Wire. The Corner was, uh, I don't know whether that's still available. I've never seen it, but I understand that it was, you know, in line with the description of you as the preeminent TV diarist of human resilience in the face of urban decline. It was when it's again about... You must be reading from someone's publicity material. It's a nice line, isn't it? Well, uh, somebody wrote it. (laughs) And you were saying, I think, that a a number of the young people that you focused on in the corner are now dead. That's true. That's true. The corner was based on... uh, a year that Ed Burns and I spent at Monroe and Fayette Streets in um, in 1993, and uh, we followed the people in this very drug saturated neighborhood of West Baltimore, uh, and in particular one broken family um, that was at the center of it. And there are some survivors. Uh, I treasure them. I know them to this day. Uh, they got out. Uh, seems like a small miracle that some people have fashioned uh, viable lives, considering what what that maelstrom was. But there are an awful lot of people who didn't are not with us, and that includes most of the fourteen, fifteen, and sixteen year old kids that we followed. Do you see signs of hope in Baltimore now? Yes, um, there. Weirdly, we are probably the cheapest American city on the East Coast. You can still afford real estate. You can afford to fix something up. You can start a business. So I see a lot of neighborhoods and a lot of um, nascent uh, uh, enterprise that suggests people want the city to survive and they're willing to take a bet on it. That said, I think um, we've been one of the worst run cities, uh, uh, astonishingly bad. Over the last decade, we've had incredible problems with corruption. Uh, the police deterrence has fallen apart. Police supervision has fallen apart. We've had the worst violence uh, per capita in the city's history. Uh, the worst records of uh, the worst arrest rates. Um, the, the deterrence has collapsed. And the supervision of the police department uh, has all but fallen apart to the point where we've had some of the worst police scandals in our history. Did I so, see that you're going to uh, to do something on that for your next project? Yes, we're trying. We're, we're, there's no green light, but we're um, the, some of the wire writers have come back together to try to work on a miniseries about the true story of the gun trace task force, which is kind of a rampart scandal on steroids where um, a plainclothes unit went so out of control and was so unsupervised that by the end they were just robbing people left and when right. When was this? Oh, over the last, uh, well, I mean, they, the, the case was broken about two and a half years ago. And, 
the, most of them have been sentenced to federal prison now, but uh, it would have it would have been going on for the decade before then for some of them. God, such a different project. You know, you're doing your your historical you back in the 1940s adapting Philip Roth, and the next minute, all going well, you'll be right up to date. There must be which is easier. It's always easier to film stuff presently because you don't have to dress every set. You know, try dressing for the 1940s and watch, you know, you know, watch a um, uh, a Nissan or a uh, or a Lexus drive through your, your set because somebody didn't do a lockup. Um, or everywhere you point the camera, there's a there's a satellite dish. Um, you know, you're constantly painting out reality if you're trying to film in the past. Um, so it's always easier to film in the present. Always. Sometimes and also, as a journalist, that would be where your instincts lie, would it not? Um, sometimes, sometimes. I mean, I don't consider myself a journalist anymore. I was trained that way, and I certainly, um, I can operate on those terms. But weirdly, and through no fault of anyone's, including my own, I've become a dramatist. You know, it's become my skill set. So, if you give me a story about. Times Square in the 1970s and, and the rise of pornography, I'll research it as a journalist slash historian, but then I can write a story as if it's drama. That's, that's, you know, and I surround myself with people who have both kinds of instincts, what's true and what can we say that will approximate that truth in the most dramatic way. You were um, referring to the, to the juice, uh, which you did with George Pelicanos. Where did that story first come from? Uh, from the stories that we heard from, from the fellow who was the, uh, he was the, um, template for the character played by James Franco. Um, he had a twin brother. They were both involved in massage parlors and early pornography and, um, and they were mob fronts. And, uh, I met the man through, um, a locations manager who worked on Treme who had been trying to make a story about, uh, trying to make a movie about uh, this guy's life and kept insisting that we should meet him. So finally, George and I did. We, we had great doubts that we would um, do a show about pornography. It, it felt gratuitous um, from the outside. Uh, but he, the, the fellow was so persistent, and he, he had to sit down with the guy for a few hours in New York. And um, he started telling us stories, and at some point, George and I excused us and pretended to go outside and smoke a cigarette. And we looked at each other and said, oh, my God, we're going to have to write this story, you know, whether it's about pornography or not. It's actually about capitalism and it's about the city and it's about misogyny and sexual commodification, all this stuff we haven't dealt with yet in any other show. It's great. So that's what happened. We got talked into it. Every show is about everything, isn't it, if it's a good one? I mean, the why... You know, The Wire started yeah. out being a story about the drug war, but then it went everywhere. Well, it had 60 episodes. Not every story is about everything, and if it tries to be, I'd say it ends up being about nothing. But The Wire had more room to grow than most at 60 episodes. Um, but having said that, um, even The Wire, I mean, there's nothing in The Wire about gender politics, for example. Um, that had to wait for, for the deuce. Uh, there's nothing about... American foreign policy and the overreach of, uh, of, of, uh, the American century, or, you know, that had to wait for generation kill. 
not everything can be everything. Uh, and if, if you try, uh, you find that out. I'm talking to David Simon. So you haven't quite got the green light for your story about the uh, the gun trace in Baltimore. Have you got the green any- light for Have you got the green light for anything at the moment? No, no, that's probably next up. We hope, and right. and those scripts we haven't turned them in yet. We're still working. You know, we're working slower than we did because of the uh, coronavirus, and uh, you know, my my daughter is home from school, and I'm half my day is now spent uh, home teaching and. Uh, there's no daycare and, you know, everything's slowed to a crawl. How's that going for you? You know, listen, I'm not going to complain. I'm in a situation where I still got a job and uh, I can do some of it, uh, you know, maybe not at the pace I'm used to. But, um, you know, I'm not out of doors. I can pay my rent. You know, millions and millions of people are really struggling with this. And it's... um there's no real end in sight yet, so you're not going to get me to complain. Do you ever think you wonder how you could do a, a series about the coronavirus pandemic? I don't know. Um, you know, my brother, my older brother, is a uh, infectious disease researcher, um, and he's in the he's in the thick of it right now. He's uh, the chief of the infectious disease department at George Washington University, and so he's living it. And maybe when um, maybe when this is all over, I'll be able to sit down and start getting a take on it from him because I really feel like I'm I'm just consuming it like everybody else. And um, the only thing I have so far is that it really is an extraordinary. Um, it, it's almost the perfect vehicle for separating those people that believe in society and believe in citizenship from those people who believe in themselves. And that's what you're seeing. You wouldn't have thought that in a public health emergency, the president of the United States could have turned uh, the, the necessity of us all behaving you know, uh, to a common goal and a common purpose into a political contest between his base and, and those people who are opposed to him. But he has. So that Literally, the basic goal of stopping the spread of a disease has been made secondary to who can gain political points and who can position themselves better for the coming election. It's astonishing. It's so interesting that it would be exhilarating if it wasn't horrific, right? Yeah. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, maybe time and and some distance will will make it seem like a narrative, uh, you know, worth telling. Right now, it just seems like um, a bad place. It was David Simon, whose adaptation of Philip Roth's novel, The Plot Against America, is on Neon.